You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. All good things do have to come to an end. I'm a little sad. Not I am too. Lie. We're finishing up our our last episode of the English Reformation with the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. I've learned a ton in this series. Mm -hmm. Today is the day we wrap it all up. Our guest, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So we've learned a lot in this series. What would you like to what would you like to zero in on as we wrap up this series on the English Reformation today? Well, I think what I'd like to talk about are the are the Protestants who were unhappy with the Elizabethan settlement. The Catholics clearly had a had, had a bad experience. You know, and maybe I should add one thing from to what I was talking about last time. Most English Catholics were not traitors. Most of them really just wanted to worship the way they wanted to worship and be left alone. So it's a small minority, but the small minority did create a lot of problems and so helped to create this image of English Catholics as traitors when it really wasn't true of the vast majority of them. So uh, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to add that little bit. But there were, there were Protestants in England who were unhappy with one thing or another of the, in the Reformation, the Elizabethan settlement. Now, these folks are different from the Catholics because they actually belong to the Church of England. And for the most part, they are strongly supportive of the queen. They rallied behind her when her throne was threatened by plotters or the Spanish Armada. So they identify with the queen, with England, and with the Protestant religion. They just think that England could do a little better in being Protestant than she was doing. The term Puritan originates in this period it was used by their critics in the Church of England. One, one of those critics described them this way, the hotter sort of Protestants are called Puritans, the hotter sort. Now, what they wanted was to make the Church of England more like other Reformed churches. We talked last time about how, if you look at it doctrinally or theologically, the Church of England falls on the Reformed side of Protestantism, not the Lutheran side. But in that act of uniformity that we talked about, one of the pillars of the Elizabethan settlement, uh, there were things in the book that hotter sorts of Protestants would have still associated with, with medieval Catholicism. So, for example, when they went to communion, although rubrics said you're going to a, a communion table, not a communion altar, and you're use, going to use ordinary bread, but the best bread. And when the meal is over, the, the, the priest could actually use that bread for his home meal. So clearly they're not treating the bread the way we Lutherans will. Nonetheless, communion knelt to receive the consecrated elements. Now, Lutherans don't think that's strange at all, but Reformed don't like anything that kind of smacks of 
adoring the elements. So they're more comfortable with people sitting to receive and share the communion that or another thing. The, the church orders are really quite, quite simplified from the medieval, but in the rite of baptism, they included, as we have in our service, the, the priest would be making the sign of the cross over the person who's going to be baptized. This, some of the Protestants did not like. The sign of a cross was kind of superstitious from the old medieval church. It was kind of like kneeling in communion. Uh, that's not in the Bible. Why are you doing it? It should be left out. Or another thing, actually, that they thought was uh, medieval and superstitious was the wedding. The wedding ring is in the marriage ceremony in the Book of Common Prayer, but some of these hotter sort of Protestants, again, said, no, that's medieval superstition. There's no wedding ring in the, in the Bible. I, and finally, there was one more item, and that was the vestments. In the Book of Common Prayer, it gave the regulation, they use the word ornaments, which means the look of the church, including the vestments, pyramids, and so forth. The ornaments should be the same as they were in the second year of the reign of King Edward VI. But at that, in that year, the vestments, the ornaments were still medieval. So the priest would still dress the way the medieval priests had dressed when they conducted services. So things like that, that are in the Book of Common Prayer are things that upset people who want to be, want to have their church consistently reformed, consistently Protestant, the way you'd find it in Geneva or the way you'd actually find it in Scotland, which was a reformed church as well. Well, initially, the law authorizing the Book of Common Prayer said that these ornaments shall be in place until the queen shall give further changes. So it, it sounded like this is just where we're going to start, but we're going to make changes later that we'll be more comfortable with in our church. But as a matter of fact, those changes never came. Elizabeth didn't do anything differently in the church from what she had done at the beginning. So in 1563, when there was a church assembly, it's called a convocation. And these assemblies met at the same time that the parliament would meet. So if the queen calls a parliament, there would also be a convocation, a church assembly. And the church assembly would look into matters concerning the Church of England. And if they needed any rules changes or whatever, the, the convocation would do that. Well, in 1563, some of these hotter sort of Protestants introduced into the convocation petitions for changes of the sort that they wanted in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, probably most, well, I, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of those who were there probably agreed with these changes. And that would be true actually of the bishops, many of whom had returned from the continent. They were Marian exiles. But Elizabeth did not like the lower orders trying to change things that she herself was responsible for. So she had no use for this kind of legislation. And so she gave word to her archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, he's kind of the head of the church under the Elizabeth, under, under the monarch, under Elizabeth, that he shouldn't accept any changes. And so the archbishop went to work and these changes were very narrowly defeated. 
So no changes in the Book of Common Prayer in 1563. After that, Elizabeth insisted that the archbishop and his fellow bishops work to enforce these rules. Because of course, if you're a priest in the West of England and you don't like something in the book, you can probably get away not using it because how are they ever gonna find out? But if you're in London, maybe some more people would and it could be a problem. So Parker was told to crack down and enforce, uh, enforce these regulations. So he did. This then gives rise to kind of a second concern by Puritans. The first concern is the way the Church of England worshiped. Too Catholic. Let's make it more like the reform. Now the bishops are on the front lines enforcing these regulations, at least Archbishop Parker is. This leads some of these Puritans to say, hmm, I wonder if our problem, problem isn't the kind of church government that we have. You know, if you read the Bible, it's pretty hard to find archbishops in the Bible. And so they began to criticize the form of church government that they had. And this form of church government was, of course, bishops and archbishops. That was not the form of church government that they had in Zurich or Geneva. There they had a rule by pastors, basically, or representatives of congregations. And so we start to get agitation against the form of church government. It was a Cambridge professor of theology. He was the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity. And he lectured on the book of Acts. His name was Thomas Cartwright. And he used those lectures as a platform for advocating another form of church government. And the kind of church government that he advocated is one that today we call Presbyterian. And that means you replace the bishop by a committee. You've got a geographic area, the bishop is out, and a committee is in. And that committee, called a presbytery, that committee consists of representatives from the congregations in that area. And the congregations would send their clergy and probably a lay representative. And usually those, they're all called elders. They're the preaching elders, the ones we would call the pastor. And then there are the ruling elders. You might think of them as our kind of elders, helpers to the pastor, taking care of the congregation, helping to discipline the members and so forth. So every congregation would send pastors and elders to this committee, call it a presbytery, call it a consistory, there are other words for it. And that would be the governing body uh, for the geographic area. That would be the one that would make decisions regarding pastors, would discipline erring pastors, erring congregations. So you've got government by councils, and that's a Presbyterian system. And that is what some of the Puritans thought should replace the system that they had, which was the old medieval system of bishops, archbishops, church courts, and the like. Hmm. I think let's take a break here and we'll pick back up with more about the Puritans. This is very, very interesting history. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates.
At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Our last episode about the English Reformation, talking about the Puritans. Where would you like to go next with their story? I want to go to Parliament. All right. All right. The bishops weren't going to budge, and Elizabeth was not going to budge on her own. So the Puritans came up with another strategy, and that was to apply pressure on the government through the Parliament. Now, we haven't said a lot about Parliament in our series here, but we should realize that the things that were happening in Parliament would have long effects upon representative government, first of all, in England, and then ultimately on a government in the United States when it was founded. I don't want to say that the Congress is absolutely the same as the Parliament, but a lot of characteristics of the Congress actually come out of the history of the Parliament. So because Parliament had legislated for the church in the form of the Act of Uniformity, Act of Supremacy, and other Reformation legislation, some of the Puritans thought that Parliament would be a good vehicle for making the kinds of changes that they wanted in the Church of England. And so when a Parliament was summoned, they did their best to make sure that members sympathetic to their cause were elected. Now, Parliament has two houses even today, one that's elected and one that is not. And in Elizabeth's day, the one that was not was House of Lords. They were all hereditary rulers, plus the bishops in the Church of England. The other was the commons. This is an elected body, but not a democratic body. England is divided into counties or shires. Each county got to send a couple of representatives, and then certain cities or boroughs also got to send representatives. They would be chosen in those jurisdictions by a small number of property holders. So you had to be a 40 shilling freeholder, which was a significant amount of money. And then you'd be allowed to vote in those elections. So it's a representative body, but not a democratic body, along with this hereditary House of Lords. But nonetheless, it is kind of tradition of independent action. It doesn't just rubber stamp with the monarch, it negotiates with the monarch. So Puritans worked to elect some of their own, to the House of Commons. And then they actually published pamphlets and tracts to advocate for the sorts of changes that they wanted. And this occurs in the 1570s as the Puritans then kind of turn to politics as an answer for their religious concerns. They don't get very far. Their man in Cambridge is fired. He ends up going to the continent. Their legislation that's pro proposed is stifled. It doesn't get very far, but that doesn't keep them from trying. And so every time Elizabeth has a parliament and she has to call them occasionally in order to get money for war and so forth, Puritans will be there and they will try to try to make changes. Some of them 
decide that they're going to implement a Presbyterian system on their own as best they can. So in some places in England, we actually have these consistories forming uh, outside of kind of the regular type of church government where you have congregations, pastors, and elders actually meeting and then doing their best to kind of promote their candidates for the ministry within the in the system. So Presbyterianism isn't legal. It's being pushed by guys in parliament and it's not going anywhere, but they try to put it into place anyway. Well, when this is discovered, as you might expect, then there is a crackdown by the authorities against the Presbyterians. And some are actually put into prison, not just because they're Presbyterian, but because they're also in their writings slandering the bishops and even the monarch and so forth. So the Presbyterian movement, the parliamentary movement, the ornaments movement all fail, but they are characteristic of this larger expression of desire for change in a more Protestant direction, a more continental Protestant direction that we're calling Puritanism. So let me give you one more example of this which is a, a, a pretty interesting one. And that has to do with Edmund Grindle. Sounds like a, a character in Beowulf, but that actually, that actually is his name, Edmund Grindle. Grindle was, was not sympathetic with these efforts to go outside or even use the legal system in contradiction to the uh, queen because he was a bishop. And as a matter of fact, he had been Bishop of London, Archbishop of York, and in 1575, he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. Matthew Parker, Elizabeth's first Archbishop, had died, and she appointed Grindel to be his successor, and he would be in that office from 1575 to 1583. But his time in office was not a happy one. Now, why not? Well, he wanted to make some positive changes in the church that would be in line with at least one concern of the Puritans that we haven't even mentioned yet, but at least one concern of the Puritans, and that was more capable clergy. Now, so far, the stuff that I've been talking about has been places where Puritans were criticizing things that we Lutherans do, kneeling for communion and so forth. But on this one, the Puritans were actually advocating something that we Lutherans also would approve of, and that was preaching pastors, pastors who preach. Uh, just in general, Lutherans and other forms of Protestants actually define the ministry as a preaching office. We, we have pastors in order to proclaim, to preach, and teach the word. Well, that's not only true of the Lutherans, it's also true of the Reformed. And in England, that was supposed to be the ideal. But just think about the problems you have if you're going from medieval Christianity one day to Protestant Christianity the next day. The priest might have been capable at doing stuff that priests do, but he isn't in one day going to turn into a great Protestant preacher. So this is a challenge everywhere. One of the things that Luther and the Lutherans did was to put out books of sermons or sermon helps. The large catechism was developed originally out of sermons. Luther also published the church apostles and their commentaries on all the epistle and gospel lessons of the church here to help these guys preach. Well, they had something like that in England. They had a book of homilies, in fact, two of them, 
And these were books of sermons that the priests were supposed to use unless they were licensed to preach. But it's only a small minority who were capable of preaching and who got those licenses. All right, so that's the story. Now, Grindel and others came up with another notion, and they had gotten this from Zurich, and that was to hold meetings of the clergy in a geographic area where they would work their way through biblical texts and then practice their preaching, preach sermons on the basis of texts they had worked on. So we would think of it today as kind of like a continuing ed program. You know, the pastors get together, work on the texts and so forth. Well, in, in case of some of these, laymen would attend too or were interested in the Bible, interested in God's word and so forth. Uh, but from Elizabeth's standpoint, meetings like these, and she probably had showed some wisdom here, could easily become gripe sessions. You get together and you complain about how bad the church is, you know? I'm sure nobody does that today, but they did this in 16th century England. And as a matter of fact, maybe these groups could even evolve into those presbyteries, those consistories. So Elizabeth didn't like them. And so she gave orders to Archbishop Grindel, none of these meetings. They can't happen. You've got to stop. Well, Grindel did something rather remarkable, rather remarkable. He talked back to the queen. He sent her a letter and basically he said, this is none of your business. This is the church's business. We're supposed to be preaching the word. And then he reminded her of one of the great episodes in church history. And that is when Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, refused to commune the emperor himself, as Emperor Theodosius. And so that's what he's reminding Elizabeth of, of this episode when the archbishop excommunicated the emperor. Well, Elizabeth was enraged by this. She basically wanted to fire him, just remove him from office. Her counselors persuaded her to be a little more political than that. And so basically what the word that they used for what she did was to sequester him. And that meant basically put him on the shelf. He was allowed to ordain and, well, basically to ordain, maybe confirm, while somebody else basically ran the church for him. So the Grindel's belief or desire to get better preachers in the Church of England went nowhere. And so once again, Puritans in the Church of England, though they could say, ah, we had a Puritan archbishop, could not point to any kind of victories that they had in changing the shape and makeup of the Church of England. So Puritanism under Elizabeth goes nowhere. However, the story is not at an end, even if the series is at an end, because in the 17th century, Puritans will be responsible for a lot of the colonization of North America. And the middle part of the 17th century they will actually fight a civil war against the king for both constitutional and religious reasons. So if you get bored uh, someday and need another history series, look me up and we can do 17th century English history. I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. McKenzie, before we wrap up today, if someone is truly interested in church history like this, where does this fit into the programs that you teach at Concordia Theological Seminary? 
Well, I do teach electives on this topic, but we would cover English Reformation and its aftermath in one of our required history courses, and that is it's kind of a course in modern church. It starts in 1580 for reasons that you alluded to earlier, and it, and it goes to the present. So it would cover this. And, and actually, you know, one of the things we didn't cover, so we really do need to do more of this next year, and that is, and that is the emergence of the Presbyterians, the Congregations, and the Baptists from the 17th century Puritan movement. So, but, but that gets picked up in that required course. Very good. CTSFW.edu. If you're looking for more information and maybe you want to go take a class with Dr. McKenzie, you can do that. Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for spending time with us in this series. It's been fantastic. I've learned a ton of history in our short time together. Thanks so much for being our guest for the series on the Coffee Hour. Oh, thank you. Thank you both very much. I have really enjoyed it. So thanks. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.